we have been given through the revelation of John a front row seat in, in this great symphony hall where the hymns of heaven are being sung. For the church has been raptured, it is in the presence of God, and these are the first hymns heard. Uh, what more could you do than sing of God's glory when confronted with the physical beauty and the terror of his throne encircled by the rainbow emitting flashes of lightning with the rumblings of thunder crashing all around and all the while strange creatures chanting holy, holy, holy. We can't even hardly begin to imagine it. These first Five hymns of heaven in Revelation chapters 4 and 5 are powerful, uh, descriptive, moving, exhilarating expressions of praise to God for his holiness and his sovereignty and his redemptive work on behalf of, of mankind. This is what it's like on the other side. In each of our past sessions, in this series, in chapters 4 and 5, we've discussed the intuitive sense of the human heart uh, for something beyond. Eternity, God, there's a sense in everyone that life goes on after death. Especially in our generation, there is this growing sense, and we talked a little bit about it, uh, this syncretism of religions where nowadays it wouldn't be unusual to pull something out of the Bhagavad Gita, and, uh, which is the Hindu sacred writings, and it, attach it to some principle of your life, uh, perhaps something out of the Book of Mormon, pull something out of Mary Baker Eddy's science, her, her key to understanding the scriptures, maybe even pull something out of the Quran and attach it to your lifestyle. You could be fairly confident and applauded in our culture today for doing such a thing and that you would be right even though you might even disagree with somebody else, they're right too. Uh, by the way, you can pull anything you want out of the Bible while you're at it. And uh, attach that to your life as well. Ask those, we talked a little bit about that, but ask those who are now tuning in by the millions to Oprah Winfrey's radio show where Marianne Williamson is teaching a course in miracles. Do you believe in God? You could ask her and them. And they would say, of course, we do, absolutely. Ask them, do you believe in the Bible? And they would say, of course, we believe in the Bible. In fact, Eckhart Toll, the well-known author and repeated guest on this television show, references the Bible 22 times in his book entitled The New Earth. Listen, these people are comfortable talking about God and the Bible and Jesus and heaven and all of that. The problem is they've given different definitions to these terms outside of Scripture. Eckhart Toll says, and I quote him, Of course we believe in the Bible. It's part of ancient wisdom. We revere the Bible. End quote. I'm not exactly sure what he's revering, but I do know what he's reversing. Here's a quote from one of his books. The truth is inseparable from who you are. The very being, capitalized, that you are is truth. Jesus tried to convey this when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. These words uttered by Jesus are one of the most profound and direct pointers to the truth if understood correctly. If misinterpreted, they become a great obstacle. Now what he means by this is that Jesus, the enlightened man, found out how to connect with the divine within and he's pointed out to everybody else that he is, follow him, he has found the way, the truth, and the life. The great obstacle is when you believe that he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the obstacle. For the believer, this is the bridge to heaven. 
For Eckhart, he is the obstacle to self-realization. And by the way, Eckhart doesn't quote the completion of that verse in John 14, 6 that says, and no one comes to the Father except by me. That part's left out. Doesn't quite fit. Ask him, though, along with Marianne Williamson and Rhonda Byrne, the author of The Secret, do you believe in Jesus? And they would say, of course we believe in Jesus. Trouble is they've redefined him. Dig a little deeper and you discover, and I'm summarizing from A Course in Miracles taught by this woman, the name Jesus is merely a symbol which can stand for any god or goddess that you can take and you can pour that god or goddess into that name. This is a different Jesus. Uh, by the way, Erwin Lutzer, in his most recent manuscript, he sent me, I've enjoyed reading them. He now has a sermon on YouTube, on Oprah and her friends, and they're praying, that church, that that sermon will be used uh, mightily. But uh, he made a point in his manuscript, he sent me, that the author of A Course in Miracles, which, by the way, is now being taught in Protestant churches uh, and Catholic churches all around Europe, now mainline liberal churches in America, it's written by a Helen Shookman, she claimed that, that that book was the result of automated writing. Uh, what that is, basically, is you're writing by means of a spirit guide who invades your subconscious, and you let yourself go, and you simply write what the guide dictates to you. Helen Shook openly claimed that she wasn't the author of the book, but its scribe. Now, how a church would ever allow that in, just with that preface, I have no idea. Neil Walsh also a guest of Oprah and comrade of all these others, wrote his best-selling book, Conversations with God. It sounds pretty good, doesn't it? But he wrote it by automated writing. In other words, the information that he wrote down was granted to his subconscious mind by a spirit guide from the spirit world. Which sends me, in my thinking, immediately to Paul's warning to the believers living in Galatia, right? When he wrote to them, I am astonished that you, church in Galatia, are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, (laughs) but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be what? Let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, that is the apostolic teaching of the, of the doctrines of the gospel from Christ, let him be accursed. Listen, it all boils down then to what you believe about Jesus Christ. That's why the gospel can be sort of boiled down to believing that Jesus Christ is kurios, Lord, deity, Literally, deity. He isn't uh, the principle, some mystical principle of deity, as Christian science is teaching today. He is a person. He is God the Son. Not some curative principle as Christian science. I was interesting. I listened to one guy preaching not too long ago. He said, Christian science, which is all the rage now, so many, so many celebrities believe it. He said, Christian science is like great nuts. You ever... By the way, you ever eaten that cereal? It is neither great nor nuts. Christian science is neither Christian nor science. Salvation comes by believing that Jesus Christ is the personal, literal embodiment of 
God. Paul goes on to add, and believe also that God the Father raised God the Son from the dead. Personally, physically, not, not mystically. He writes in Romans 9, 10, these two things, believing he is deity and that he is alive, resurrected from the dead, literally, these two things are the sum and substance of the gospel. In other words, you can't be saved apart from the gospel, and you can't be saved apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. I got a lengthy, rambling letter from somebody who believed I was in error for making too much of the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, from what I've read, just to you in this introduction, which is really going to go on for a long time, and I want to warn you, uh, from Galatians and Romans, we cannot make too much of Christ's deity. The problem is the church today is making too little of it, right? In chapter 4 of Revelation, God the Father is worshipped as sovereign, pre-existent creator. In chapter 5, God the Son is worshipped as redeemer. And by the way, as we'll see, as we begin to get a little closer into the lyrics here, these lyrics will exalt the same attributes in the Son that are attributed to God the Father in chapter 4. Equal in essence though the Son is subordinate in function, doing the will of the Father. One author wrote, Only on earth is there any question about Jesus Christ's identity and worth. In heaven they know who he is and what he's worth. Only on earth is there confusion and error. But in heaven there will be perfect clarity and magnificent worship, and we've had just a taste of it today. Now, if you've been with me in this series through Revelation chapters 4 and 5, following the first two hymns of heaven in chapter 4, we arrived at chapter 5 to discover the apostle John, who's broken into tears. He's weeping. He's weeping because there's no one capable of opening the scroll with seven seals. John's audience, you remember, would know immediately that a seven-sealed scroll was a title deed. It was a last will and testament. No one was worthy to claim the title deed of earth, the universe. No one was powerful enough to carry out the last will and testament, as it were, of God the Father. But there was one. One who centuries earlier had come to earth to do the will of the Father and now will complete it. In in verse 5 of chapter 5, John is told to stop weeping because Jesus Christ who is equally omniscient and omnipresent and omnipotent. He's, he's described in chapter 1 of Revelation as preexistent and sovereign. This one is able to fulfill the will of the Father. He is powerful enough to see it accomplished. By the way, let me add this thought. God evidently knows now his will for the future, symbolized by the scroll. And, and Jesus Christ there to receive it. The open theists, another heresy that is gaining ground for those, really, in the hearts of those who don't believe, uh, they have to stumble here at, this, at their belief that, that God is learning as he goes along, that he's figuring out things as mankind responds. Here, in, in, in the text you're looking at, in, written in AD 95, Uh, God has already written the scroll, events that are going to take place. Now it's been more than 2,000 years later. It's already confirmed. To God, the future is as clear 
as the past. So here's the son in verse 5, the lion, the one who descended from the royal tribe of Judah, the one who is both the descendant of David and the, the preexistent root of David, the only one who conquered death in the grave. He's stepping forward to receive the confirmed, decreed will of triune God. Already established in the first century. Yet to be revealed, we don't know when. It could begin these, these hymns today. Listen, to try to find the will of God through mediums and spirit guides and channelers, the occult world, is a dangerous pursuit. To listen to the teachings of authors like Rhonda Byrne and Marianne Williamson and Helen Shook and Eckhart Tolle and the list goes on and on and on is to play with fire. Since the heart of every human being knows there's life after death, Everybody wants to know. There's something out there. There there is a spirit world. It's just as alive. You go to the the, the deepest Amazon jungle. You go to the the most uh, erudite society. and, And they intuitively know there's a spirit world. But if all forms of spiritism, whether channeling spirit guides or automatic automatic writing or seances and the like, if all of it was then fakery, if, if we would say as a church, well, it's just sleight of hand, in, in that case, God would never have forbidden his people from dabbling in it. Why worry about it? Why bother? A gentleman in our church gave me a recent article a couple of weeks ago from the Wall Street Journal that recorded the ongoing uproar right now that's happening in the Philippine Islands over a judge, a trial court judge who was fired. He's taken it all the way to the Supreme Court there. He was fired because he admitted to receiving advice from three invisible elves. No, I'm serious. Sounds strange to us, but not in that culture where elves are considered a part of the spirit world, capable of relaying information to human beings. They have power, and that that superstition dates all the way back to the 16th century in their culture. People in that culture make pilgrimages to places of supposed elf sightings. This judge claims to have been able to perceive these three elves in 1986. Before he was fired, only recently, he would sometimes enter a trance in his chambers and write his rulings. The three elves... He knows them as angel. He says that's a new, the neutral force, Armand, who is a benign influence, and Louis, whom this judge described as the king of kings. Ladies and gentlemen, Satan, the angel of light, is alive and well. He has his hopes and plans. He and his dark kingdom also have the ability to deliver to open minds and hearts information about the past and events of the present and clues about things that just might happen in the future, deceiving many into believing they have tapped into something good. That's how that channeler, by the way, on television can come up with a nickname of your deceased uncle. The demonic world can communicate through their own network what happened in New York and Australia. They see right now the vision boards of 
tens of thousands of women who are following Rhonda Byrne and the secret, maneuvering for many of them whatever they can so that some of it comes true, so that those women can be further deceived. Listen, there's a reason why demonized people in the New Testament immediately knew who Christ was and who the Apostle Paul was without ever having been introduced. They knew Now, they do not know the future any more than you or I, for Satan and his demons are not omniscient, but they can read the times. They've had thousands of years of experience watching humanity at work and play with incredible skill. So we're warned of it. Several years ago, I headed to Japan to visit some of our global staff, Bill and Becky Petit. By the way, what a privilege to have in my class this semester at Shepherd Seminary, that little boy who's now preparing for ministry. He's going back to Japan to pastor a church planted by his grandfather as soon as he graduates. Before I left, whenever I travel like this, it's my custom to get a footlocker and fill it with candy and games. For me. No, I mean for the missionaries. (laughs) And then I leave it with them. And so I went to the, the store and I was surprised to see Ouija boards stacked. You ought to know that the makers of the Ouija board in 1922, went all the way to the Supreme Court claiming tax-exempt status for what they believed was a spiritual exercise. They called it a form of junior mediumship. I reread again on, on, on the web the article declaring the, the, the decision of the Supreme Court. They refused their argument. And so since then it has been sold as a game. If you have an Ouija board, throw it away. If, uh, if you are, are reading tarot cards for fun, throw them away. You're playing with fire. If you read the horoscope in the newspapers like millions of other Americans just to sort of see if you know it's going to come true, stop. If you're calling 1-900-PSYCHIC, stop. Okay, Millions of people are calling every day And the deception is widening. Stop flirting with a kingdom that is real and is out to deceive and destroy. God does not warn us because these things are innocent. Just read again 2 Kings chapter 1 on your own sometime. God doesn't forbid the activities of mediums and sorcerers and spiritists and astrologers because they're silly or you know, just for fun, or they're really not true, or none of, it, none of it ever happens. He warns us because they are a doorway that opens the heart and, and mind to the deceiver, the angel of light, the false teacher, the medium, the channeler, the erudite and articulate guest on television talk shows who say that you can create your own destiny having gained knowledge from spirit guides. Your will can move the universe. For the believer, there is only one whose will we seek. There is only one to whom we pray. There is only one on whom we meditate. There is only one who controls the universe. There is only one who has revealed the future in the truth of Scripture as we pursue it. There is only one whose will we desire. Listen to the prophet Isaiah deal with the spiritual wanderings of his own people as he wrote this warning. When they say to you, Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. 
Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law, to the testimony, he says, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no light. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. Here's the future. All that God wants us to know about it is unrolling in a scroll held not by a principle of deity, a symbol for any god or goddess, but the Lamb of God, the risen, majestic Son of God. In this inspired tour of heaven, Christ alone is the one worthy of performing the will of his Father, which will mean unleashing the wrath of God on earth, eventually riding to victory with the redeemed and setting up the throne of David in Jerusalem in that coming kingdom. So John stops weeping as he sees Jesus Christ take the scroll. Notice in verse 8, And when he had taken uh, the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders, which represent the church, fell down before the Lamb. Listen, John is seeing what is in your future. That's what's so exciting to me about reading this. We're there. He's seeing something that we're participating in. The church. We are crowned. We're wearing white robes. And, and, and we'll... we'll Place them at his feet where we're called to rule and reign as priests before God. They fell down. People often wonder what we're going to do when we see Christ. You don't need to wonder. This text tells you. You will fall at his feet. John MacArthur shared in a session I attended some time ago about a well-known leader, a pastor in California, who told him on one occasion that he was shaving that morning when Jesus Christ appeared to him well-known charismatic leader. He said, Jesus Christ appeared. Then he asked John, do you believe me? Do you believe that Jesus Christ appeared to me? MacArthur asked, did you keep shaving? He said, yes, I did. MacArthur responded, it wasn't Jesus. If it had been, you would have fallen on your face at his feet, shaving cream and all. I'm really sorry if this ruins one of your favorite songs, but the Bible often does that when it's consulted. You don't need to only imagine. When you first enter the presence of Christ, you won't dance before Jesus, and you won't be able to speak at all. We're told here, you, you aren't going to hug him either. You won't high-five him. We won't give him a round of applause either. We won't be silent in fact, a great hymn is about to erupt in this symphony hall like we've never heard before. We will fall at his feet. Now before we look at the lyrics, notice what the elders representing the church are holding. Verse 8 tells us that they are each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense. The grammar here in the text makes it Unlikely that the four creatures are holding harps or bowls of incense. In fact, uh, it seems that um, they do not sing until the final stanza of the hymn we're about to hear. Now, when you hear about the elders holding harps, you think, I knew it! We're going to play harps in heaven. 
This is where people, by the way, get the idea that we're going to sit on a cloud and play a harp forever. Now, some of you wouldn't have minded if the text said, you know, they're all holding guitars or, or trumpets. In fact, some of you would really be happy if it said they're holding banjos. You know, heaven knows good music, right? Amen. Now, these are literal harps and bowls, but they serve a symbolic purpose. We're given some help in verse 8 by being told the symbolic nature of the golden bowls of incense. Notice, these are the prayers of, of the saints. A Roman Catholic interpreters would use this verse to prove that saints in heaven are serving today as mediators of prayers voiced on earth. And, and so we ought to be praying to the saints. And so you choose or pick your saint. Protestant author Randy Alcorn in his book entitled Heaven argues that saints in heaven are praying for people on earth. Now, neither view is necessarily heresy, certainly. Uh, Randy Alcorn's book is, is a wonderful exercise. But what both views miss, first of all, is the clear teaching in Scripture that there is only one mediator in heaven. And his name is Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2.5. Furthermore, this is not a picture of saints in heaven praying for saints on earth. This is a picture of the future when the church is in heaven with Christ immediately preceding the tribulation. John is not implying here that saints in heaven are conveying to God the prayers of believers on earth, as Roman Catholicism teaches, or that saints in heaven are involved in praying on behalf of saints below, as Alcorn's book teaches. This, this, is, this is a picture, not of here and now, but of the future. The prayers of the saints, then, I believe, could be understood at this particular stage in history as appeals to God for the coming of Messiah's reign, that literal culmination of how Christ taught us to pray on earth before we were taken to heaven. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can you imagine the perspective we will have and the ability to pray that particular prayer then will be amazing to hold before him those prayers at that point in time. What about the harps? Well, we're not told what they represent as we are the bowls of incense. However, in the Old Testament, harps are often associated with prophecy. The prophet Samuel prophesied to the sound of harps in 1 Samuel 10, 5. Before Elijah prophesied in 2 Kings 3, 15, he called for a harpist while prophesying. I agree with, with the most evangelical scholars here that I have read that when you take together the harps and bowls, what seems to be indicated here is that all the prophets that have ever prophesied and all the prayers that God's people have ever prayed is finally and ultimately going to be fulfilled. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a former pastor, provoked my thinking when he wrote this. He said, you know, there are four things that are out of place right now in the universe. What he meant by that is there are four things not yet in their final place. Christ, who belongs on David's throne. Israel who belongs in our land, Satan, who belongs in hell, and the church, who belongs in heaven. Kind of an interesting thought, isn't it? 
No wonder there is such incredible worship. Events are moving that will put everything in its rightful place. Now notice verse 9. They sang a new song. Why a new song, by the way? That struck me. Well, it's a new song because nothing else will quite do. Uh, The Greek word for new, kainen, is a word that refers to something better than old. Something of superior value. And when you think about it, Revelation is a book of new things. You've got to jot in the margin. We're given a new name. That's one thing. Chapter 2, verse 17. Chapter 3, verse 12. We're going to occupy a new Jerusalem. Chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 21, verse 2. There are new heavens. A, a new earth coming. Chapter 21, verse 1. And to kind of sum it all up, God says in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5, I make all things, what? New. Everything is new. What a wonderful promise. Are you abused? Are you mistreated today? God is going to make everything just. Are you suffering and afflicted? God is going to make everything right. Are you tired of temptation and sin? God is going to make everything clean and perfect. Are you tired of the drudgery of life? God is going to make everything fresh and new. Are you getting old? I am. I turned 50 this month. 50? That stinks. I know people in their 50s. They're old people. They're old people. just want to make sure I offend it. just about everybody today. When I began pastoring Colonial, I was 28. And I longed to turn 30. I longed to turn 30 because 28 just sounded way too young. So happy. I was even happy to turn 40. I'm not happy anymore. Okay, I want you to know that. And guess what I got in the mail this week? Who told? That's what I want to know. I I opened that thing up. Actually, I didn't know what the AARP was, but everybody in the brochure had gray hair and they seemed very happy. (laughs) So I I Googled online this week, found out it's a huge organization for people 50 and, and up. They've got their own magazine. Would you believe that the AARP magazine has the largest subscription in the world? I didn't care. I threw it away. I, I am, I'm still 49. I want you to know that. I'm going to hang on too. Are you getting old? God is going to make everything, including us, brand new. They sang a brand new song. A new song. That word for song is the word ode, which gives us our English transliterated word ode. It's a lyrical poem intended to be sung. We recognize that word in the classical world of music, don't we? In Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, he included the poem Ode to Joy, which is very famous. Now, in fact, the Ninth Symphony is called the Symphony of Joy because it is so joyful in its lyrics. The poem ends with these 
powerful lyrics sung in this magnificent symphony. One sees the banners of joy in the wind through the opening of burst coffins. One sees her standing in the chorus of angels. Endure courageously, millions. Endure for the better world. There above the starry canopy, a great God will reward. It's interesting that by the time Beethoven finished this, he was deaf. Never heard one note when it debuted with him conducting. There were four movements in it. After the second movement, people leapt to their feet and began to cheer. He, facing the symphony, was rather bothered that they weren't preparing for the third movement. He kept tapping away at his stand until finally one of the members pointed and he turned around to see the crowd cheering while members of the orchestra wept. Ode to joy. Magnificent music. We can't even begin to imagine here, but the redeemed are singing an ode to Jesus. It is incredible. It begins in verse 9 with the words, Worthy are you. Now John's audience would have goosebumps at that first phrase. Why? Well, Domitian, the cruel Roman emperor, was beginning to persecute the church. It was Domitian who exiled John to the island of Patmos. Whenever there was a lavish state banquet or a festival, the crowd would rise when Domitian entered and they chanted these same words to him. Worthy are you. Worthy are you. Imagine what a thrilling moment as as this orchestra and choir sings. And John hears these opening words to the true emperor of heaven. The king of kings. John's day, don't forget the church was small. The church was isolated. The church was struggling. The church was sinful. What will her future be? John would have wondered, here he is exiled, the last living apostle. Will she triumph? Will the promise of Christ come true that the gates of Hades will not overwhelm her? What will be the future of Christianity? Now he is fast-forwarded. And he sees the church is alive, triumphant, and well. Millions upon millions upon millions of redeemed singing worthy are you the lyrics go on for you were slain the word used for slain refers to a death of violence and mercilessness brutal his death was not an accident his death was intentional Without it, there is no gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. His death was also redemptive. Notice the next phrase, and by your blood you purchased us for God, which I believe is a better reading. If you have the New King James, that's how it is translated there. The word for purchased, by the way, was used in John's day for buying slaves and then setting them free. You bought us and set us free. Imagine singing that there in heaven one day. Christ's death was not only intentional and redemptive, it was universal. I did not 
say, I believe in universalism. By the way, that's the belief that everybody's going, if you're sincere, no matter what you believe. It is universal. That is, the effects of the atonement of Christ reach around the world. Just look at the middle part of verse 9. The Redeemer from every tribe. This refers to the same family line or clan. The redeemed are from every language or tongue, glossa, gives us our word glossary. This, this refers to every group distinguished by a language. The redeemed are from every people. This word refers to race. The redeemed are from every nation, ethnos, gives us the word ethnic. This refers to an ethnic body of people united by culture and, and the tradition. Can you imagine John's heart pounding with amazement and joy as he discovers that the atoning work of Jesus Christ has gone around the world? Three benefits, quickly, to Christ's cross work are sung of next. The church is given, first of all, royal position. We're made a kingdom, he says in verse 10. Secondly, we're given an eternal priesthood. As priests, we have an ongoing, immediate access to Christ, our Lord. Thirdly, we're given a future promise. It's still future, by the way, to the choir of redeemed. We're singing it, but it's still future from that point on, the tense of the verb. Uh, Verse 10, the latter part, and they shall reign on the earth. This is an indisputable reference to the coming kingdom on earth. They shall reign, not in heaven. They shall reign on the earth. More on that later. Ladies and gentlemen, this ode to joy is inspired here. You could call it an ode to Jesus Christ, which is how I came to think of it. It's really a song about the power of the cross work of Jesus Christ, who was slain, who ransomed people for God. By the way, Marianne Williamson and her course in miracles on Oprah's network now, having taught millions of people, here's what A Course in Miracles says about the crucified Lord, and I quote, A slain Christ has no meaning. The only message of the crucifixion is that you can overcome the cross. Do not make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross. End quote. A slain Christ has no meaning? My friend, a slain Christ has eternal meaning. It is of the utmost importance. Don't make the pathetic error of clinging to the old rugged cross. Listen, don't make the pathetic error of ignoring the old rugged cross. That's the gospel. The apostle Paul said, I had this in my notes and it was delivered by our sister in the baptismal. That same verse where Paul said, God forbid that I should glory in anything except the cross of Jesus Christ. You can't make too much of that either. You ignore the crucified Savior, you reject the cross of Jesus Christ, and you will die in your sins without hope forever. You accept the crucified Savior, you place your faith in his death for you, and his forgiveness of your sin, and his resurrection for your justification, and you will live in heaven forever and reign with him one day. Ignore it, die in your sins, and suffer the consequences forever. Believe it and live unto Christ and you will live with him in the coming kingdom forever and ever. Father, thank you for delivering to us a taste of these grand hymns of heaven with more to come. Help us to sing even now as a redeemed body of people with that energy and excitement 
because we do belong to you. And we're warming up. So I pray, Father, that you would engage our hearts in worship. And we wouldn't stop today, but tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and every day of the week, worshiping you, our risen, sovereign Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.